Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. I am Kim France. And I'm Talia Bacassis. I'm especially excited for today's episode as our guest is my old friend, Ann Powers. Ann is NPR's music critic and correspondent, and she has written for the New York Times, Spin, The Village Voice, and countless other publications. And her most recent book is Good Booty, Love and Sex, Black and White, Body and Soul in American Music, which was named one of the best books of 2017 by the Wall Street Journal, BuzzFeed, and NPR, among other places. She's widely regarded as the best female rock critic working today, and I'd argue that she's the best rock critic, period, although it's not a competition. Welcome, Anne. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on this fabulous podcast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, in high school, you were sort of the female Cameron Crowe character and almost famous. You were writing <laughs> music reviews for The Rocket while you were still in high school, um, which was Seattle's music publication for many years. What was that like? Wow, if only I... Uh, my trajectory had been like Cameron Crowe's. <laughs> I would be living in, in a much more fabulous house. But um, yeah, I started writing about music in high school, partly because, to be honest, I was such a huge fan of music and I was making my way into the local scene in Seattle. So uh, since we're all of a certain age here, mm -hmm. I can say this was pre-grunge. This was mm -hmm. pre uh, Nirvana breakthrough. I did go to college with Mark Arm of Mudhoney, although uh, I don't think he knew exactly who I was or would have given me the time of day. But in high school, you know, I got into going out to local shows and as a young woman who wasn't going to be in a band, probably, even though I did like singing choir, I wasn't, hmm. you know, really going to join a band. I felt like I had to find a reason to hang out. Hmm. I loved to write, and I loved 
music. So those things added up. But I also really wanted a reason to be in those rooms. Because honestly, if you were a teenage girl and you were in rooms with bands in the late 70s, early 80s, well, people made assumptions, right? Right. So so this was a way I could meet and talk to and be part of the scene that felt legit, that was legit. I remember somebody telling me that you go through a phase when you're a young woman watching a musician on stage where at first you want to be his girlfriend and then there's a shift in your mind and you realize, oh no, I want to be the musician. Oh, exactly, exactly. And now, because indie rock is dominated by women, I think we might have a reverse situation. But to that point, that is so true, I think. And I often say that if I had been born 10 years later... I might have pursued music. Right. Perhaps all of you out there in podcast line should feel blessed (laughs) 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 that I did not. But, um, you know, Riot Girl and the feminist punk explosion happened in the 90s. There was a huge democratization of rock for women. Right. Before Mm -hmm. that, I think it's interesting to think about how if you were a dude and you want to be in a band, you could, you know, not be a good singer, not be a very skillful instrumentalist the bar was fairly low especially in (laughs) indie music as kim knows well (laughs) from from her days covering indie music but for a woman the standard was really high you know you had to have a certain kind of voice you had to be a virtuoso instrumentalist to be considered good enough to be in a band i mean i think someone like tina weymouth of the talking heads is a great example of you know a bass player who even though maybe she wasn't you know highly trained when she when she started in the band i think i i don't know her actual origin story on that but you know she is the musical anchor of that band and she in my opinion might be the best instrumentalist in that band hmm. but is she acknowledged as such rarely i think in the history of rock and roll there are just there's huge double standards that we never even talk about having to do with what the bar was for women to even enter into the picture so writing was something that I was good at, you know, and loved to do. And uh, the opportunity arose. And the opportunity arose in an interesting way, too. So I was writing for my high school paper at Bishop Blanchett Catholic High School in Seattle. And um, there was a band called the Cowboys. They were like a new wave, you know, rooster haircut, Uh tight spandex pants kind of band. And I liked them quite a bit. I wrote an article about them for my high school newspaper and their manager. He thought... I was a a good writer, I guess, and a novelty. So he suggested to his friend, you know, he said, hey, there's this teenage girl. She's actually a good writer. You should have her write for the paper. They connected with me. And of course, every article they had me write was either about teenagers or (laughs) about women, you know. So right away, I was sort of slotted into these slots. I wrote about all ages clubs and skateboarders and teenage stuff. And then I wrote about you know, Joan Jett and, and the Go-Go's, which was amazing. I mean, it's amazing to be like 18 years old and interviewing Joan Jett in her hotel room for sure. Mm. But it's interesting that even then I was categorized, you know, mm. the idea that I would have gone out and interviewed, you know, the boys was, it, it was less likely. Even when I got into music writing, which was later than you did, I was immediately slotted as a, a women rock star writer. 
Oh my God, it was happening to you, me, Evelyn McDonald, Karen Schomer, you know, on the on the hip hop side, Daniel Smith, Joan Morgan, Dream Hampton. It's like, and I actually had editors say to me, you know, kind of jovially, like, oh, I'm going to let you in on this secret. The male editor would say to me, you know, and I would love to have another woman writer for this, but you're just the best. So that was one thing that got said to me. But the other thing was, oh, well, if you can't do it, then we'll go down the list. It was either you, Kim, or me, or Evelyn, or whatever. Yeah, I remember. I mean, I have to say, I've always felt, when we both wrote about rock music, very competitive with you. And I'd be like, (laughs) why did Anne get that amazing assignment? And it wasn't until years later that I realized, like, Anne was much better than you. (laughs) Well, you are much better this is a healing moment, and I'm glad we could have this moment. <laughs> no, you were better at a lot of things than I was, Kim. Come on. <laughs> One reason I feel like in men, I wanted to start a Tumblr for a while called I Preferred the 90s because I really preferred the 90s. But one re- reason I've got such nostalgia for it and the indie rock scene in the 90s was that that's where I saw the most compelling expressions of feminism happening. Do you feel like there are people carrying that torch today? Absolutely. You know, now we have this generation that grew up with the example of women in the 90s. And more than that, with the grassroots efforts of those women in uh, through institutions like Rock Camp for Girls, you know, and other programs and, you know, dare I say it, Sassy was so foundational, absolutely foundational in this. So now we have Indie Rock is now like dominated by young women who have no doubt about their validity, no doubt about their right to be at the center of the story. It's very inspiring. I remember going to cover No Doubt after their first album really hit. And I follow them around as one does when they do a story and watch them perform in the evening. And Gwen Stefani on stage, you know, very young audience, and Gwen Stefani is shouting on stage, fuck you, I'm a girl, she's chanting, fuck you, I'm a girl. And I just thought this generation is going to be so seismically different than mine. (laughs) Yeah, and it's funny because I remember when Gwen Stefani came out, uh, there was a a kind of a snobby reaction, like like that Just a Girl was diminishing. I think that the rock critic world kind of read that, read her wrong, mm-hmm. you know, and thought, oh, that's minimizing the importance of a girl. They weren't understanding how, how incredibly important it was to bring that message and her, just her physicality, you know, mm-hmm. she was, she was beautiful and she also was athletic, you know, she was fulfilling every aspect of an ideal that went beyond gender. I think that was what was so important about her. Right. Can we talk about um, ageism in the music industry and in particular as it pertains to women? <laughs> you see me nodding. I was thinking about this. This I was like, ooh, we can talk about ageism. No, I, I wasn't literally <laughs> thinking about that. Well, maybe I was. Yeah. Oh, well. Uh, I know. That's not even a question. <laughs> it's just like. <laughs> well, it's interesting. So I was listening to your, your interview with Karina Longworth. And I love Karina's podcast. You must remember this, which is about Hollywood in the 20th century. And she said something about Hollywood, how you aren't even allowed to be over 40, that physically you're not allowed to look over a certain age. That is so true in pop. It's like, Mm. it's even more profoundly true in pop. I think that the age is younger in pop. It's younger than it is in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. I mean, you aren't allowed as a mainstream pop star 
it's pretty damn hard to be, you know, to present as older than 30, you know, even though some of our hugest pop stars, of course, are over 30. But, you know, look at Beyonce, for example. Well, okay, she's a bad example because she's so singular. It's funny because I Googled her age before this conversation. I was like, oh, she's 38. I know. But, you know, the thing about pop stars in the 21st century. So this was always true. And it's very complicated, of course, as all things are. This was always true in pop music. Pop is considered a, a youth field. It is for young people, supposedly, even though, of course, we all love music. You love music mm-hmm. when you're 90. You don't stop loving music when you turn 50. It's you know, mm-hmm. That's just ridiculous to think. But the industry has been youth-oriented for most of the 20th century and into the 21st, and certainly since the 50s when it became a teen market. But, you know, it's particularly acute now because so many of our major pop stars actually started as teenagers. So, you know, think about Taylor Swift, as we all do all the time. (laughs) I've done three reports on the new Taylor Swift record in the past two days. (laughs) Are you kidding? (laughs) It's like, I'm waiting for the next request. Uh, But think about Taylor. So she's 30. She's made eight albums. She started when she was so young that she could have this, you know, the same career the Rolling Stones had Well, the Rolling Stones made more albums per year, but, you know, it's like she had the entire Beatles career already, (laughs) basically. (laughs) You must have seen the documentary about her, uh, the the Netflix Miss America. Yes, 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 yes. Miss Americana. She was so self-aware and she made some comment about knowing that she had a shelf life and that when she hit 30, nobody would want to hear from her anymore. And she's proving that wrong, but it's interesting that she's moving into this kind of like indie, quote unquote, indie realm by working with, you know, sort of art rock musicians like Aaron Dessner from The National. She is very candidly setting herself up for like this next phase of her career because it's not like Madonna is not still out there playing arena tours assuming people Mm -hmm. can still play arena tours, you know, (laughs) after the pandemic. But, you know, it's not like we don't have examples a few examples of older women who can do this, but it's exceedingly rare. And uh, it's really treated kind of like the blue rhinoceros, right? It's like, does Mm. this person really exist? Madonna, Mm. I don't think there is ever a conversation about Madonna right now that doesn't refer to her age. Like It's true, but I thought she was going to be the one who was going to redefine it. But in the end, she seems to be, I mean, I, I hesitate it feels very mean-spirited, but there was at the beginning of the pandemic that video that she put out of herself in a bathtub that was very bizarre, and that <laughs> yes. shows that like she's not dealing well. Um, and I thought that she was just so strong and so such a reinventor that she would make it all cool somehow, but it just seems... I mean, she's profoundly human, I guess. Yeah, I have to say I agree with you. I, um, I had very high hopes that Madonna would... Uh, as someone who who so beautifully encapsulated, embodied conversations that we all have about sexuality, eroticism, I mean, she embodied that spirit so powerfully and, and women's self-determination, uh, mm-hmm. particularly in the erotic sphere. I was totally psyched for Madonna to go through menopause. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, like, and then be our menopausal postmenopausal goddess you know (laughs) like like I was just waiting for that but I you know I wonder how much choice she's really had in the matter as far as I mean of course she's Madonna she's like super rich she could do whatever she wanted but 
if she wanted to, you know, stay in the game in, in terms of especially touring, right. how much choice does she really have? Like, It also has to do with the kind of artist she was. You know, it's not like yeah. we're going to ever see an acoustic tour from Madonna. Right, <laughs> right, right. Which is exactly why Taylor Swift is better positioned to become a, a you mm-hmm. know, a quote unquote serious or, you know, mature artist. So I live in Nashville, and one reason why it's great to live in Nashville, despite the fact that Nashville is not really handling the pandemic very well, but that would be for a different podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> one reason why it's great to live in Nashville is because country music is one space historically in which women have been able to grow older and still garner interest, at least as live performers. And and that has a lot to do with the fact that country music is very institutionalized. And, you know, there's this central institution of the Grand Ole Opry. And the Grand Ole Opry has a lot of issues. I do not mean to only celebrate it. It has a history of minstrelsy, among other things, Hmm. in its past. But it is a space where older women performers are respected. And, you know, they can be on that stage. And there are uh, groups like the Browns, and there's Jeannie Seeley, who's one of the hosts of the Opry. She's, I think she's in her early 80s now. Um, mm. You know, we see these women in country music. They're out there. And of course, like the icons, you know, Dolly, obviously. Now, True. we can talk about Dolly's body, her her own issues around uh, presenting herself and self-preservation, as it were. But, you know, she's still an incredible force. Loretta Lynn. Yeah, I mean, the list can go on. Unfortunately, country has taken the cue from pop in the 21st century, and it's become a really difficult realm for women in general. So that that sucks. (laughs) (laughs) But it is nice here in Nashville, because like I can go out and I don't feel like a total weirdo. You know, if I go to a rock show or an indie rock show now, um, unless it is, you know, a Yola Tango show because they're touring. <laughs> that's just what I was just <laughs> thinking. I was just thinking that's the only place I don't feel like a freak. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we have our artists. Oh, my God. Kim, uh, Amy Rigby came down here and performed on her, her great new record she put out this year, uh, last year. And it was like people I didn't even know lived in Nashville. Were the oh, that's funny. <laughs> All the olds turn out for the old indie band. But, you know, if I go to see a new band that's a rock band, I am Grandma League. And oh, my God, I have to tell you guys, this totally changed my experience of interviewing artists. You know, being in my 50s, I'm mom now. It's so mm. great. Oh, my God. They love <laughs> to talk to mom. People want to talk to mom. When I was younger, I always I struggled so much with interviews, with especially with male artists, because I just didn't know where to put my femininity, my, my sexuality, my, right. my being, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wasn't a groupie. I didn't want to be a groupie. You don't want them to see you as somebody sexual in that moment. Right. Well, you know, if they did it was a huge problem if they didn't it was a huge problem because frankly and you're talking about the 90s is a great moment for women but it was also a pretty macho weirdly sexually repressed moment Hmm. for for dudes or maybe they would give you like a better interview if they were attracted to you kind of thing what do you think kim (laughs) it's it's so hard to say so many i mean so many of the people i interviewed were just narcissistic to the bedillionth degree and i i think i could have been anybody i think we were all sort of interchangeable yeah Mm -hmm. i think that's true but you know oh my god i remember this 
I did a spin piece on the band Alice in Chains, and that was like the nadir of my <laughs> my interviewing career. Because first of all, Lane Staley, may he rest in peace. He was a horrible junkie. He had a terrible heroin problem. So they flew me to Min- Minneapolis. I was supposed to interview them. They were playing at the, um, uh, what's the famous club there? They're play- oh, oh where Prince used to play? Cut out the fact they can't remember the name of it. It's something. <laughs> that There's you- basically this moment in every episode. <laughs> Oh my God! The the other it's the Fourth Avenue. The let's see. <laughs> I usually cut it out, but I think I'm going to leave this one in. We're normalizing flakiness in middle age. <laughs> <laughs> okay, First Avenue. Oh my God! It's like not like I haven't seen Purple Rain 150 thousand times. Okay, so they're pl- so Allison Chains. They're playing at First Avenue. I'm supposed to interview them. The whole time I'm there with them, the singers chasing drugs. Everyone else in the band is chasing the singer. I cannot get them to sit for an interview. I'm on the tour bus before the show, and they have all these girls, like teenage girls that they mm. have picked up that are like on the bus. And I remember very vividly a couple of the guys in the band, like they're like to the girls, they're like, you stay on the bus. And so these girls didn't even get to see the show. They went in to hmm. play the show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mingle and have their night. And the girls just, they sat there on that bus waiting, you know, waiting for their after show experience. And it was so, I just felt so degrading all around. I never got that interview. I ended up interviewing them in New York when they came a couple weeks later. I don't think I even wrote about that. I really should have. But but that was what it was often like, you know, with, that was the worst experience. So it wasn't like it was always like that. But it was that experience of like, why are you there as a woman? Why are you in my space? You felt that mm. a lot. I felt that mm-hmm. a lot with male male musicians. Yeah, mm. I get that. You know, but I think mm. we have to be real about the persistence of, especially in terms of touring, of the system that had been created in the 70s. I write this about this in my book, Good Booty, that there was really like a system created to support arena rock tours. And that system groupies played a central role they were the reward you know they were the payoff at the end of the night they were the reason why these dudes would endure the incredible boredom and discomfort of life on the road because you would go to I don't know where Kansas City or Minneapolis or wherever play a show a complete you know you're completely dislocated from everyone you love you're staying in shitty hotels whatever even if they're luxury hotels they're shitty hotels after a while and you're playing in an arena where the sound is bad it's not that fun to play but after Mm -hmm. the show you get your drugs you get your booze and you get your women and so how does a woman like me fit into that right um, fuck, now I'm having one of those moments. <laughs> Post-traumatic stress from the <laughs> rock critic life. <laughs> it's true. It's so real. <laughs> it's true. Oh, I know what I was going to say. And that is that every band I know, every band with men in it that I know or have been around has groupies, just without exception. Yes! Yola Tango probably has groupies. <laughs> but... <laughs> But just to, you know, pick on Yola Tango today. (laughs) But does the inverse exist? Are there male groupies? 
Well, I don't know too much about uh, whether, say, Boy Genius, the supergroup of Phoebe Bridgers, Lucy Dacus, and Julian Baker, is kind of like a little indie supergroup. I don't know if they have groupies. I guess I'd be interesting to know. I remember reading an interview. I think it might have been with the Go-Go's, or maybe it was a little later, and it was with L7, one of those L.A. all-women bands. And they said, well, you know, we get some guys but they are all the pencil protector types. <laughs> <laughs> they certainly weren't the, you know, highly adorned, highly self-maintained, uh, you know, goddesses that female consorts of male rock bands tended to be. I mean, one huge development that's happened in the 21st century, of course, is the way that the, the especially in indie rock, is the way that the rock scene has intersected with Me Too. People are getting called out. I mean, look what happened mm. to Ryan Adams, you know? Yep. He's... Mm. He got called out in the New York Times for being a dog, you know, and well, he should have, frankly. The landscape has altered, is altered. It's so altered. And and thank goodness. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin, and I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once-daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule, essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry-leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry-leading sustainability standards. You know I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump, and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long, and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess, is the best way to do it. Say it. Do it. 
<laughs> okay, so you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. Welcome back to Everything is Fine. Another thing that is like a new phenomenon is that pop fandom has evolved into this kind of extreme sport. And every musician has their stands. Beyonce has the Bayhive. Lady Gaga has the Little Monsters. And they're basically these fans who don't see reason and will stop at nothing to protect their artist against any possible threat. So how has that affected your your work? Well, I had a little incident. <laughs> I had a little incident uh, uh, when I wrote a piece. I don't talk about this too much, but I will. I trust y'all. So <laughs> I wrote a piece uh, about Lana Del Rey's last record. I intended for the piece to be an evocative and really sort of an encounter with the album more than a review. You know, I really was trying to capture how the album made me feel and the thoughts that it stimulated in me. Well, Lana Del Rey did not like this piece. She tweeted something about it, and she she felt that I didn't understand her. Hey, you know what? Completely legit. More than legit. Yeah. Uh, in fact, a good critic should sometimes hope that an artist will object to their work. But right. uh, her fans just went, they went wild on me. You know, they, they went on the attack so aggressively it became it's the only time I've ever trended on Twitter uh, yeah. I have a screenshot of the you know in the Twitter news I don't even have a blue check I've never even tried to have a blue check so and the thing that was kind of stunning about it aside from the fact it got picked up as a media moment and and people wanted to interview me well a of course it was not a negative review so so just the mere fact that she felt that I hadn't had misunderstood her record. It wasn't that I panned it or that there was any power in this piece to do anything to the success of the record, you know, and not right, like right. really criticism ever does anything yeah. these days in terms of mm. whether a record succeeds or not. But it was the persistence. It was the persistence of these fans that was so stunning. You know, I still get tweets about that. Huh. It's, it's been, how long has it, it been? Was it scary? I walked away from, from social media for a few days when it happened. I got a huge outpouring of support from my community mm -hmm. of writers. So that made a huge difference for me. If anything, I I was joking to my husband. I was like, uh, did I die? Because this feels like my, my <laughs> funeral. Everyone is, everyone is like giving eulogies about me. So that was wonderful. You know, uh, it was weird because it's like, a weird reason to be elevated, right? I never felt threatened because I wasn't doxxed, you know, as far as mm -hmm. I know. Like, I don't think I was getting phone calls. I mean, aside from the usual spam phone calls you just ignore. And nobody ever came to my house or anything like that. So maybe Lana Del Rey's fans are like a little bit like they're a little more loose. Patriot. They're like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. they don't want to leave the beach. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I don't know exactly when this is going to air, but. Uh, it's happened right now, recently, with uh, what Jillian Mapes wrote of a very, very positive review of Taylor Swift's new record, and her fans doxed her. 
mm-hmm. because it was an eight and not a 10, as far as the Pitchfork score goes. The critic doesn't assign the score at Pitchfork, so it's not even her doing. And it wow. was truly like a 100% positive review. So I think that just shows how it has nothing to do with your work when this happens. It's just like a weird shift in the weather. It almost feels mm-hmm. like that, you know what I mean? Yeah, shift in the weather. But Hey, I I mean, I just want to say, I think artists should be able to be mad at writers who they don't agree with. I think, you know, artists and and writers should not always be in total lockstep with each other. If anything, that's a huge risk of our time, because while, yes, it's unpleasant to be attacked by fans, we also have to question how much we crave praise from the artists we like. Mm-hmm. I love Brandy Carlisle. I love her as a person. I love her as an artist. I uh, have for many, many years. And we are friendly. And you know, sometimes we talk on social media. You know, I have to ask myself, maybe I'm compromised with, as far as it goes with her. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I do care mm-hmm. about her as a person. If I write something about Taylor Swift and Taylor Swift says, oh, your your piece was so insightful. How do I resist that kind of praise like you have to like feel your spine and remind yourself that that cannot matter to you on some level it just cannot matter to you or you cannot be a good critic Mm -hmm. yeah and we both have we have friends who've become close with the people they write about and it you know i remember a whole show where courtney love actually mentioned a mutual friend of ours on, on stage and he was like, there goes my credibility. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's hard. And I think, I, you know, I have very complicated feelings about this because especially here in Nashville, it's such a small ecosystem and you really live among the people you write about as a music writer. So, I mean, like literally, you know, there is a, uh, a really great songwriter who lives on my block like mm-hmm. six houses down who has written for the high women and written for little big town and written for like every country artist I like musicians who I love here. Uh, I run into them in the freezer section at Kroger, <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, yeah. so it's complicated. You, know, you kind of have to work out your role and, and it has changed. And I think social media has made the world a little bit like Nashville where, mm-hmm. You know, we are all constantly talking to each other and you can have that dialogue with someone and you just have to keep asking yourself, what am I motivated by? Why am I wanting to write about this music? You know, I was never super into doing pans. I was never really like into what do they used to call Frank Rich? The, not the monster oh, of the Broadway. Butch- the, butcher the butcher of Broadway. Broadway. <laughs> Yeah, I never wanted to be the butcher of the Bowery Ballroom or whatever, <laughs> you, know, you know. But I will tell you, here it's funny because like the two people that I that I negatively reviewed that are the most prominent people, both are major people here in my town. So I hmm. ended up with like karmic payback. So I reviewed the White Stripes, uh, the first show, big show they had in New York, and I was very short-sighted and thinking, well, these guys, they're not really as good as John Spencer Blues Explosion. Talk about indie bias, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And I gave him, like, you know, a somewhat... It wasn't a terrible review, but I have apologized in print to Jack White at least twice. 
but uh, I hear he still is kind of mad at me for that review. I've never, you know, I've never really had a conversation with Jack White since then. And then I will apologize. And I don't know if this might be a scoop for y'all's podcast, but <laughs> I will apologize because I reviewed the first Gillian Welch and David Rawlings record. I think it was for Spin. And I was like, this feels fake to me. I totally didn't get what they were doing. And I do regret that so much because I did not get that record. And I have, you know, chatted with them in the lobby at the Ryman at various shows and everything. And and I'm just standing there thinking, do they remember? Do they remember? You know, Mm. so I just want to say, Gil and Dave, I love you. I'm sorry. (laughs) My ears were off. My ears were off back then. <laughs> you know, I had Juliana Hatfield called me the C word on Twitter. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, I music is so personal and writing about music yes. is so personal. And you end yes. up, if you're not fantastic at it, as I don't think I was, projecting a bit, you know. Right. And I really projected a lot of expectations onto this poor woman. So oh. when her second album came out and it wasn't sort of sisterhoody enough, you know, I wrote a review and she, she was very angry about it and remained very angry and I apologized. I wrote back and said I was young when I wrote that review. I was projecting and she accepted it, sort of. <laughs> I mean, it's hard because I have been reviewed. My books have been reviewed negatively and some of my darkest moments on earth have been when, well, for my first book, Weird Like Us, I, I got a pretty negative review in the Village Voice from someone who, who I later worked with at the LA Times and never would talk to. Like, I, I could not let go. And then more recently, Good Booty got like a less than awesome review in the New York Times, which I think affected the reception of that book. And that was really crush. It was crushing, you know? Yep. I mean, personally, it was incredibly crushing. You work so hard on something. And I remember after that voice review of, of my first book, going to a show at the Knitting Factory and... That was the one moment where I thought, I don't know if I can be a reviewer anymore because I felt the humanity of that performer so acutely at that moment. Like, I just thought this guy who was on stage, who's a singer songwriter, you know, he is a person. He is a person. And what I write about him is going to affect him personally, emotionally. And, you know, and I thought, wow, oh my gosh, you know, obviously I've, those feelings faded I was able to step back you know and I still was able to write reviews that were negative enough like I think I once reviewed Don Henley in such a way that caused him to send me a fuck you note you know (laughs) (laughs) but so I still I still accomplished that but (laughs) but you know it is it's it's hard these are you know artists are people so you if you think of them if you think about their humanity when you're writing about them then that can lead to some compromise but then let's talk about like what the hell is objectivity anyway and do any of us have objectivity no none of us ever do not really we all bring ourselves our biases our our emotional lives into every piece we write so I think you know as long as you're honest about that as honest as you can be okay we better wrap up um but there's a question that we always ask everyone and it's kind of evolved (laughs) um (laughs) At first, we were asking everybody what their favorite beauty product was, and that was popular with some people, and then got blowback from other people. So now we're asking for your favorite beauty product, your favorite life hack, your favorite piece of advice, or any secret you wish you knew when you were younger. Oh, my goodness. What? 
maybe I'll use this as an opportunity to do a PSA for taking care of your hearing. I am an old rock critic and I cannot hear you when you talk to me because I am pretty freaking deaf. And that's because for years I refused to wear earplugs. Mm-hmm. I, I refused, you know, I wasn't going to do it. Mm. I would stuff napkins in my ears, you know, I would buy those crappy little foam ones. Those do not really work. That, you know, I remember going to shows in New York and running into the, the CVS and buying, you know, whatever swimmers earplugs they had or something before I would go see nine inch nails Mm -hmm. (laughs) just ridiculous but take care of your ears young people if you're out there and take care of your ears older people because you know you're still going to go to shows and there's still going to be a moment where it's kind of loud so I guess that's my biggest my biggest life hack (laughs) thank you thank you so much Anne this has been fantastic it was very fun I'm sorry I didn't have any recipes for sardines on toast. (laughs) I love Melissa Clark's episode. (laughs) Oh, thank you. That's all it is, sardines on toast. (laughs) No, this was really fun. How should people find you if they, uh, if after this, they want to read more of you or anything? Yeah, I, uh, uh, so I work for NPR Music, and you can just search my name with NPR, and you'll have an aggregate of all my pieces. I'm on Twitter at Ann K. Powers. I'm on everything at Ann K. Powers. So Twitter and Instagram at Ann K. Powers. A-N-N-K-P-O-W-E-R-S. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Everything is Fine. We're your hosts, Kim France And Talia Bacassi. If you like the show, be sure to rate it and write us a review on Apple Podcasts. We're really grateful for the nice reviews you've left so far. If you have suggestions for show ideas or anything else, email us at tallyandkim at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram that is EIF Podcast, and you can find me on my blog, girlsofacertainage.com. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.